0: One Hope Church. We're going to continue this morning in our study of the uh, book of Luke. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 20, 23. We'll pick up this morning in verse 26. Um, and so we're nearing the end of the book, and just um, <clears throat> wanted to remind us of a couple of things. Uh, as we've gone through this book, we've seen Jesus, um, and that's really been the point, is to see Jesus, uh, to see him as he is, the one who would be the, the hope um, of Israel, but not just of Israel, but of all nations and of all people, um, and, you know, is Jesus really the one Who uh, he claimed to be. Is he really the promised one of God, the Messiah, uh, the Savior, um, the King? And so as we've seen him, we've seen Jesus and his authority. We've seen his authority um, over sickness. We've seen his authority over death. We've seen his authority um, over sin. Um, We've seen his authority over uh, nature. We've seen his authority over everything, and yet um, we have found him recently. uh, A couple weeks ago, we, when we were um, studying and and talking about this, we saw Jesus um, in the garden of of a place called Gethsemane um, to pray, and he uh, is distraught, and he is um, in agony in deep emotional agony in his soul because he knows he is going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to experience something that he had never experienced in all of his eternity. Remember, when Jesus or Christ exists from you know, eternity past. And then he's had this relationship with the Father from eternity past. And now when he takes on all of our sin, it's going to cause separation, because sin, by definition, what sin does is it separates. And so he's going to experience something that in all of eternity past, he has never experienced. And he's going to suffer as he has never experienced before. And he's going to do so out of, his, out of two things. One, um, in his deity, in, in that he is God, in his love for us. And in his humanity in his obedience to the Father. As it says, not my will be done, but yours. And so, we are getting today to that, that dreaded moment, that dreaded time. Last week, um, Father spoke and, and talked about his, his trial, um, and his trial before um, Pilate and how the, the people are screaming for his crucifixion. For the death of Jesus. And so I just want to read a few verses uh, from there to to make sure we have a context for this morning um, as we read. So in chapter twenty-three, we'll just read from verse 18. We'll read a few verses. It says, But they the crowd all cried together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent and demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will, or over to their desire. And so that's where we pick up verse, in verse 26 this morning. It says, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside, and the soldiers seized him and put the cross in him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And so I just want to stop there for a moment. And I want us to have this picture in their mind that they are leading Jesus and the cross and there's this procession to go to the place where Jesus is going to be crucified, where he's going to be hung on the cross. And there happens to be this man coming in from the countryside. He hasn't participated. He hasn't been witness to all that has happened to this point. But today, his life is going to be changed. It is going to be altered. He doesn't expect, we don't see any reason to, to have an idea that, that this man, Simon of Cyrene, would expect to be a participant in this story. If he had heard, perhaps word had come into the countryside that something big is happening, and he just wanted to go see what was happening... He certainly did not anticipate being an intimate participant in the, in the details. He might have come to see things from a distance, but things were about to get very personal for him. And I think that, that is, a, is a, in some ways, a metaphor or a picture for what happens to a lot of people, and it's a beautiful thing. A lot of people, you know, are going through their lives and they're kind of just, you know, minding their own business. They're just doing their life what they would expect to do, they're they're going to school, or going to work, or going to play a sport, or whatever it is, and along the way, they get interrupted, and they meet Jesus. And it's a life-altering experience. And it's really interesting, because in the the book of Mark, which is also telling the same story... It tells it this way it says they compelled a certain man Simon a Cyrenian the father of Alexander and Rufus as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now why does it say the father of Alexander and Rufus? It's because you know when Mark is writing his gospel he knows these people. You know there's an intimate connection that these this family is now part of this story. And I don't think it's a jump or a leap at all to say that these people are now part of the community of faith, that they are followers, you know, of Jesus. Because of what happened on that day when their father was going, you know, perhaps to, to see what was happening or perhaps didn't have a clue at all and unexpectedly got wrapped up into the story. Of Jesus. You know, and as I look around you know this room today, I see people who many people who you know you're going along with your life, and all of a sudden you got interrupted by Jesus. That's awesome, it's powerful. And maybe there's still some yet who will hear this message this morning, who just even now your life is beginning to be interrupted, it's beginning to be altered. Forever. By Jesus. And so let's pray and then we'll continue with the rest of the the lesson for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for the privilege to be here this morning to look into your word. We thank you that so many of us have experienced that we were going along in our lives and you stopped us in our tracks, dear Jesus. You showed yourself to us we were interrupted by you, that oftentimes we were not even looking for you. And yet, you did something in our lives. You showed us yourself, and when we saw you in your glory, we saw you as king and as savior, we couldn't help but believe in you. We couldn't help but fall on our knees before you. We couldn't help but to worship you and to give our lives to you because, Jesus, you are the only true king. You are the only true savior. So as we look, dear Jesus, as you went to the cross, as we look at the details of that this morning, we say thank you that you went and you paid our debt that we could not pay, and you took our shame that we could do nothing with but try to cover and hide. And you've taken it all. And you, you took it on yourself. As you were humiliated in our place, and as you took our, our sins upon you. And Lord, you have purchased our freedom and so, Lord, we pray that you would free more people, and those of us you have freed, you pray, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us live as free people, not again under any bondage. And we ask it, dear Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So it says um, in verse 27, <clears throat> it says a large crowd trailed behind, including... Many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child, and the breasts which have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, Fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Man, those are some words there that Jesus has. As, you know, he's going to the cross and he tells these women. And it's interesting, you know when we look at the life of Jesus, um, it seems like it's, it's easier for the, the women to identify you know, earlier who he really is. They see Jesus in his you know, purity. They see Jesus in his humanity, they see Jesus in his um, love and in his power. And they are, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm basing this on some on, on personal experience, but I think it's, tr- it's true, you know, in cultures all over the world today. Um, it's true in our ministry in, in Mexico and, and in the mountains. Um, it's, it just seems easier for, the, for, the, for women. Women have pride, but women seem to have a little bit less pride. And to say, Lord, I need you. But, you know, those us men, you know, a lot of times we can just be some hard-hearted dudes. And we can say, you know what? I can do it on my own. I can do my life on my own. And it takes a little more humbling humility. You know, sometimes, you know, know, it, it is true. Sometimes a woman has to get knocked down, you know, in terms of life. Life, you know, has to kind of deal her some blows in order for her to recognize, yeah, my way of life isn't working. I need Jesus. But it is true, I think, more so, you know, for men. Just, in, you know, in general terms. Obviously exceptions to these things, but in general terms. You know, when we go preach the gospel in the mountains in Mexico, you know, women and children will believe in Jesus and they hear about him. But many times... <laughs> The men have too, you know so much pride they say "I don't need that I don't need that, and that's even in a culture where people are more humble than most cultures. That's even in a humble culture, more or less an arrogant culture like the one we we have and that we live in. <clears throat> but Jesus says to them, "Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep." For yourselves and for your children. And then he says, you know, people are going to be saying, we wish, we wish we had never had, things are so bad that we wish we hadn't had children that they would suffer under these circumstances. That's how bad things are going to be. Wow, that's intense. So what's he talking about there? Well, he's you know in a near term sense, and specifically for these very women that he's speaking to, many of them and their children and or their grandchildren are going to be are going to experience the the you know fall of Jerusalem and the destruction you know of the temple where not one stone lays on top of another where it's you know completely you know destroyed where people are running to the hills where things are so terrible. And Jesus says, you know, he says this, um, if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What what is he saying there? He's saying that there is life here right now available to you. There is life. Because Jesus is right there with them. But what about when that's not so much um, the case? You know, when when Jesus, you know, he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he is going to raise from the dead, which uh, Kevin Grasso is going to bring to us next week. You know, So, that's going to happen. We celebrate that. But then there's going to be this, Jesus is going to go back to his father and there's going to be um, some trouble that comes. And then if we look way out, we see as we read the book of Revelation that there's also more trouble to come, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And so, there's going to be even a future time when there are people in places who are going to cry out. And this, and, you know, we see like near-term things. I mean, this has happened in history. You know, we think about, you know, you think about the Holocaust and, you know, World War II. And, you know, there were people then who were, you know, wishing that they were, had never been born. And wishing that they hadn't had children because things were so terrible and so awful. What a terrible thing. But he gives it as a, a, a warning, and it's kind of, and in, and in some ways, it, it might not seem super obvious on first 3, but I think in some ways there's a, a call there for faith, a call there to believe you know, in him, a, a call to find salvation in his name. So verse 32 says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with them. You know, and, and we don't read a lot about the details of that, but I guess you could imagine that, like, well, we're going to have a crucifixion; these other guys are scheduled to be crucified, so we might as well go ahead and do that now. And um, they take them out; they were led out to be executed with them. And they, w- when they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified—one on his right and one on his left. Now. Jesus has already suffered immensely. He's already been beaten on his back with, you know, 39 lashes that have, you know, ripped his flesh. He's already been hit in his face many times and his beard, you know, yanked out. He's already had a crown of thorns placed onto his head and, you know, beaten in. His physical suffering has also, you know, has been immense. But I don't I, and I don't know that we can even you know, imagine what it would be like to have nails driven into your hands and into your, you know, through your flesh, and to be hanging by that. Even the the jolt of it, as you know, the, it's put into the ground. We it's it's difficult for our minds to imagine that suffering, and yet we're only there talking about the physical. You know, and I think so many times we do this, we focus on the physical suffering of Jesus because it's so intense to us, but we haven't talked about the emotional, and we haven't talked about the spiritual. And I don't think that we can begin to fathom, that we can begin to understand the depths of the suffering of Jesus. And there's a reason that he was grieved and when he was in the garden, and he was praying that he was grieved in the deepest anguish of his soul. And with all of that, verse 34, it says Jesus said, "Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing." And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. All of that that he has suffered, all of that that he is enduring at the hands of sinful people. And remember, he's doing that on behalf of all sinful people. These were the sinful people who were, you know, doing the physical acts. But you and I need to remember that it's my sin that put Jesus on the cross, and it's your sin that put Jesus on the cross, that you and I have a responsibility with that. And you may try to argue you know, your way around that and say, well, this happened 2,000 years ago and I wasn't even alive then. Well, from when you were small, you were in you know, rebellion and in sin and shaking your fist at God. And it doesn't matter if your sins were not the most grievous. It doesn't matter if they were small or if they were big. You still have a part. And if you were the only person on the earth, in order for you to have relationship with God, it would still be absolutely necessary that Jesus would go to the cross and die for your sins. If I was the only person, my sin is still so great, and God is still so holy and so perfect that it would still require the death and blood of Jesus to cover me. And in order to come to Jesus, you, kind of have, to, you, know, you have to own that and say, It's my sin, I'm responsible. I'm the reason. You know, this is a very personal and intimate thing we're talking about here. That I'm responsible that a holy God in all of his perfection would have to put on human flesh and come and be born as a baby child in humility, in a humble place, as a servant. that he would live his life and that he would suffer and that he would be humiliated and he would be stripped of his clothes and he would be nailed to a cross and he would suffer and he would die for me. It's intimate. It's personal. I have offended God that much you have offended God that much. And in this, we have to recognize that we only deserve one thing. We only deserve that God would wipe us from the face of the earth and cast us into hell forever and ever. That's all we deserve. But yet, God has said we're valuable. God has said we're precious. God has made us in his image and put his stamp, his image, you know, onto us and says that each one of us, if you were the only person, would still be worth going to the cross for. What does Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tell us? But God shows us how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we do have to step back and have a humble, a humble perspective because, you know, yes, God made you and yes, God made you valuable and yes, God made you precious. But also because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, we're born with a sin nature and our propensity is sin and our, we are driven, you know, we, we rebel against God. And each one in our hearts have And there's nothing good in our own merit. God never looked down and said, well, I'm going to send Jesus because Chet's good enough and he deserves it. It's the opposite of that. I'm going to send Jesus because Chet is a desperate sinner who can only be saved by a radical love of God that sends his only begotten son to the cross in my place. It's a radical love that God has for us and it's it's powerful. You know, God's love for us is different than a human love. You know that we 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 you know, our human love is driven on on our perceived value. You know, we we value a person Sometimes we just value them, you know, because of a position whether they're part of our family or, you know, whatever it is. But we find some reason. You know, I'm just talking about in the flesh now. I'm not talking about in the love that we have that comes from God. I'm just talking about in our human flesh. You know, we find some reason to love. But God loves us because he loves us. You know, God, God loves us in spite of everything. In that while we were still sinners, God loves us. Now think about how great lo- God's love for you is and how lo- great his love for me is this morning. And how much he really, how much we, we should fall on our knees and worship him and desire to follow him with our whole lives. Because he made us, so he really, you know, he owns us there, Right? <laughs> But then we rebel against him, we run from him, and yet Jesus dies for us, and, Jesus, and you know, Jesus pays for us, he pays our debt at the cross. And so if you're a follower of Jesus' mourning, them, I mean, he's bought you twice, it's like, what else does he have to do? You know, so many times people are looking and they go, you know, well, if God will only do something in my life, if God will only provide this or give this, then I'll follow him. It's like, really? Are we serious? Are we kidding? I hope we're kidding. I hope we haven't really thought this through and still have that attitude. Because if you have Jesus made, you know, God made you, Jesus died for you, does he need to do anything else? To prove his love for you? If you ever doubt that God loves you because of the circumstances of life, and I'll confess that I have, at different points in my life, I've questioned, I've gone, God, do you love me? When I was a kid and I was picked on without mercy. God, do you love me? When my cousin killed his own parents and shot himself in the head, yet, God, do you love us? And do you know what the answer is? The answer is the cross. The answer shouts back, Yes! Yes. God loves you. Yes, God loves you. We see at the cross... God's preference. Cuz people always talk about yet you know God judges. That God judges and that God gives salvation. When Jesus says, "Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing." Jesus knows the preference of his father because his preference is the same. Because we talk about God being a God who judges, and we talk about a God being a God who gives salvation and who gives mercy. But if you look back in the Old Testament, time and time again, you will see God, either himself directly or through a prophet, calling the nation of Israel to repentance. If you would only, you know, turn, if you would only repent, if you would only turn from your sin... And follow me and worship me, then I would, you know, forgive you and and cleanse you, and I wouldn't bring judgment on you. You know that's the refrain. Time, you know, time and time again, that is said to the nation of Israel. You know, read the prophets and you see it. God hasn't changed. He's always had a bias. He's always had a preference for mercy. He only judges because. That's the last resort because his holiness demands it. But his preference is mercy, is grace. That's his preference. So what we see Jesus ask his father for here is no different than what the father has desired and what The God of Israel, Yahweh, has desired from all the way back at the beginning. He first created this. Jesus isn't asking the Father to do anything outside of the Father's character or of his own character because God's preference is mercy. But again, we have to have the balance and we have to remember because people will take that and they'll say, well, God's preference is love. You know, God is love and God's preference is mercy and therefore no one will be judged and no one will go to hell. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from Satan. It's a lie that causes people not to take life and death seriously, it's a lie that just says, you'll be okay and just believe whatever you want to believe and live however you want to live and, you know, you'll be okay. Or, or it's a lie that just says, well, just try to be a good person. And if you try to be a good person, well, that's enough. And God knows you tried to be a good person. And so then, no, 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 no. Jesus went to the, pro- to the cross to provide for us salvation, but it's still something that has to be entered into. 1 Timothy 2 3 through 7, talking about our prayers, and it says, you know, our prayers, this is good and, and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. You hear that again God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved. And to understand the truth, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and an apostle to teach the Gentiles uh, this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. There's one God and one mediator. There's one go-between God and us. And that is Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? How did he become our mediator? Well, he gave his, his life as a ransom or as a payment for our sins at the cross. This is what we are reading about this morning in Luke, that this is what he is doing. And in doing so, you know, there are all these prophecies... In the Old Testament, that spoke about these things happening. Hundreds of years before they happened. We have another one here when it says, The soldiers gambled for his clothing by throwing dice. Look what was written hundreds of years before in the book of Psalms, chapter 22. I'll begin with verse 16. It says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. There it is, hundreds of years before. It was prophesied. You know, people, you know, reading this, before this happened, you know, what is this talking about? Like, how could all these things, you know, these things happen And could you even be so brave as to ask if those things could happen to the Messiah, to the anointed one of God? And yet you see here, at the foot of the cross, instead of falling down and worshiping Jesus, people are gambling. They're throwing dice for his clothing. As a, you know, twisted... You know, it shows the evilness of the heart. That you know, they would gamble for his clothes and you know, and take a piece of clothing home as some, you know, in their mind, I'm going to take this as some sort of, you know, trophy, some sort of symbol of what I did today when I put a man on a cross and watched him suffer and die. You talk about the sick pervertedness of the human heart. Well, that potential. You know, there's, there's really no bounds to the potential of the wickedness that is in, you know, a human heart. You know, you look back through history at all the atrocities, and even in the atrocities that are going around today, and you say, oh, that's a, you know, a twisted, wick, you know, wicked, you know, human being. And the reality is, that's an average human being as an average human being whose sin has become full-blown. We don't like to think about it that way. We don't like to think about the reality that our neighbors you know, have it in their hearts, the ability... And, you know, as I talked about my own family earlier, I never would have thought that in my own you know, family that somebody that shared some DNA with me would have the capacity to walk into his mother's room, room and to load her with bullets. It, the depravity of the human heart is not far away from us what people are capable of even ourselves if we may have some limits but you know if you're if you're not in fellowship with the lord you know you and I are still capable of doing some pretty nasty things still capable of committing adultery Still capable of lying to get yourself a promotion. Still capable of throwing somebody else under the bus, you know, metaphorically, in order to benefit yourself. Still capable to hurt somebody else in order to feel better about yourself. Still capable to justify your own sin instead of owning it before God. Still capable to say a hurtful word to the person on this earth that you love the most. Still capable of all that. And so I want us to understand that each one of us, you know, I need Jesus today as much as I ever have on any other day. I need Jesus today. And I need to walk closely with him today. I need to be at his feet today. I need him every day. But there's an interesting twist here where someone... is going to see something that others don't see. Because in verse 35, it tells us, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself, if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the, the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. That was written in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. So let's look at the emphasis here. You know, especially when something is said three times You know, basically the same thing, but in different ways. You know, it's for emphasis. It's for us to understand, you know, the scene and to be able to see it clearly in our minds and in our hearts of what's taking place at this time as the the religious leaders are mocking Jesus. You know, he saved others. You know, they're referring back to his miracles that he had done where he had healed people. Of their sicknesses. And they're saying, oh, he saved others. You know, even kind of trying to put all of that in doubt. You know, if he's really the Messiah, if he's really the Savior, if he's really of God, isn't he going to save himself too? The soldiers, they did the same. Even saying, you know, here's a drink for a king. If you're a king, here's a, you know, here's a drink for you. And one of the criminals in this, you know, you have to hear this in the tone. I believe is intended the sarcasm that's there. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too. While you're at it, you know, if you're really the King of Kings. If you're a king of any sort, certainly you can save yourself and save us. You know, and in their darkened and twisted minds, their mentality that, that if Jesus wouldn't save himself, then certainly he wasn't who he said he was, wasn't who he claimed to be, wasn't who his disciples claimed him to be. And I know Kevin's going to talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to take all of that away. But, you know, that, that they are asking that question. You know, the whole book of Luke is asking that question. Who is Jesus? But verse 40, there's somebody who understands, who sees, and he's not a person you would expect to see in this moment. Even he sees it despite his own suffering. It says, but the, verse 40, the other criminal protested, don't you even fear God, even when you are sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. He saw the man's faith. And really that is the key thing, you know, there's not a particular phrase that, I mean, this man didn't say what is, you know, what we call, you know, the sinner's prayer you know, you know, he he didn't do that. But, he you know he obviously what he what he does do when he says, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He acknowledges, you know, Jesus, your king. It's obvious in his heart, you know, who 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 he believes the king is, who he believes the savior is, who does have the power to save him. He believes Jesus does have the power to save him, and more importantly than saving his physical body, that you know, Jesus can save his eternal spirit. Remember me when you come into your kingdom and, and Jesus responds to his faith with a promise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And he could give him that promise that it was going to have you that day because that man was going to die that day and there was no question about that. But that same promise is true to each of us who believe. When you die, you'll be with him. To each person who believes... Now the the death is not so looming and the fear of death certainly doesn't have its power because we know, you know, I know that if I die today I'm going to go be with Jesus. And is there any better assurance than that? What a beautiful assurance it is I'm not going to get into this today for the sake of Tom, but you know there's that question of you know when Jesus died on the cross, you know did he go to hell later on it came out in you know in some of the creeds and things like that, and we talk about that in the house fellowships and Bible study um, on that that question um, I'll just say here that you know, I don't think that question was asked, you know, by these disciples at that time. That's not even something in their heads. That's something that, a question that comes up later on. Um, but today, you know, Jesus is serious when he tells that man, "I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise." Now, verse 40, forty-four. By this time, it was about noon. And darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. And suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with those words, he breathed his last. And then the Roman officer overseeing the execution, saw what had happened. He worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had, come, who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. It's powerful Beautiful scene. So at noon, something unexpected happens. When Jesus is on the cross, it says, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And this is really, really deep and powerful. Because you know, in the temple, they had this—they had the place where everyone could be, and then there was the, a curtain that divided that place from the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, one man to represent the people, on one day of year could go in to the Holy of Holies. And this here is extremely symbolic and powerful because Jesus being our high priest, being the mediator, the go-between of, our, of this new covenant that Jesus had already talked about when he had his last supper with the disciples. He talked about this new covenant that's coming. And so now, with Jesus being the mediator, he rips that, div- that divider down. And what does this mean? It means all those who who worship God have access to the holy of holies all the time and that the old system is done you know and I and I want to be clear because yes you know we see I mean we say for example David who wrote many of the psalms I mean he's obviously worshiping God in other places in the temple right you know, it's not that God was confined to the temple, but it was a, a symbolic um, thing, and it was an, it was very important that you know there was this um, law that was given, and there was this need to show us that we can't keep the law, to show us our need for a Savior, and really the whole system is designed for that to show us our need for Jesus. Once Jesus. Comes and he's dying on the cross for our sins, that need is met. And so there's no need for this old symbol anymore. There's no need for this old way anymore. And that's really difficult for people because we as humans have a tendency to enjoy traditions. We like traditions. You know, even at a university, like University of Georgia, there are all these traditions, right? And there's all these traditions that happen, even around, a, you know, our biggest traditions happen around a football game. But there are all these traditions that happen with that. And if you tell people, hey, we're going to scrap that and we're going to do this other new thing, you're going to have a lot of really, really angry, unhappy people. And you know what we're talking about there? We're talking about a university. We're talking, in the grand scheme of humanity, we're talking about pretty small things. We're talking about a university. We're talking even much smaller than that. We're talking about a game, football game. So you, you go now. Now you have that in your head. Now you come in and you say, "Hey, this way of approaching God that you as a nation have been doing a couple thousand years now, longer, we're, we're going to x-nay that, and we're going to do this other thing." You're going to have some people that are not happy about that. But the same thing's true in anything. You know, today. You go into any culture, any system, and you say, hey, this way that you approach God, where you did these rituals and that made you okay with God, or you did these good works and that made you okay with God, and what your forefathers have done for hundreds of years, well, that's actually not how you are right with God, but it's Jesus and a cross and an empty tomb. Well, yeah, you're going to meet some resistance to that. You're going to meet some resistance to that. But the great thing that we have in our message, and I think we all need to understand that, and this is something we can communicate to people of every culture, of every tongue, of every nation, of every people, that if you go back far enough in your history, in your family's history, you will find someone who worshiped God according to the way of God at that time, whether it's with Jesus or back even way further back behind than that. You know why? You go back you, can go, back, you can go back to the flood you go back to Noah common ancestor of us all. You go back Adam and Eve we still share our common humanity we all have the same first parents So if you go back far enough, now in some of our families, you have to go back further. And that's hard and that's difficult to think that people weren't going God's way. Even if it's just one generation, it's hard to think, well, my parents weren't worshiping God according to the way of God. It's hard. But how better, how much better to begin to follow God the correct way, the way way of Jesus, through Jesus, and then to set up your generations to follow? Because when my dad came to believe in Jesus, that changed things and that changed things for me too. It affected me. I started to make my own decisions but now I had a a basis where the word of God is is there in the home. And we have people in our our church that they're the first people in their families in a a long time to believe in Jesus and to follow him according to salvation by faith. And not of their own doing. But the blessing of the generations past, and we can obviously, we keep praying for those who are still, you know, older generations above us that are still alive. And we say, Lord Jesus, please show yourself to them as you did to Simon of Cyrene when he wasn't even looking for you, when he wasn't expecting you, when he was just going you know, down the road and maybe he was going to see a spectacle or, or maybe he had no clue what was going to happen, but Lord, you grabbed him and you showed him something of yourself that day and please do that for my father, please do that for my mother, please do that for my brother or for my sister. Show yourself to them. But when Jesus says, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands, John eleven eleven says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. As the Father, in verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, not of Israel. Them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Who who still had all the power in the situation? Jesus did. He voluntarily gave his life. He laid his life down. He's able to say, Father, I commit my hands and my my spirit into your hands because he's able to say when it's been done, when it's finished, when it's enough. And Luke doesn't um, record the words, but in the other gospel we have, you know, it is finished. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. And the word that is used there really means it is, you know, it's paid, it's paid in full. It's the same word you would find if there was a bill and, you know, there was a debt. You know, you had bought a hundred sheep, and you owe, owed money for those sheep. And, you know, and they wrote out how much you owed, and then they'd write, "Tela, You know, it is paid. It is pay- It is finished. You know that debt is done away with. And so, when you know, when you Jesus did the work, He did it all. But when you enter into it. You enter in and your debt is paid and it's paid in full and it's not you have Jesus plus then the other good things you do. No, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's all Jesus. And it's what he did. He takes your debt and then he does even more than that. He also takes your shame. Because you know, we're ashamed when we look back at our lives. I know every single one of us are. We're ashamed at things we've done. We're ashamed when we were humiliated. We're ashamed of... Something about ourselves. We've all experienced that. I know you have. I know I have. This is a common human experience. Every human has a debt and a shame. And Jesus takes it all, and he had to suffer the most humiliation and the ultimate shame, hung naked on a cross for everyone to see. But he did that. He entered into our debt to take our debt. He entered into our shame to take our shame. Jesus did all of that for us. So yes, it is all him. Yes, our church is to be all about him. We meet to Jesus and for Jesus. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not anybody's church, but Jesus' church. We get to participate and be part of it and to be in it. It's his church. In our lives, we need to have that same perspective. My life is Jesus's life. It's for Jesus. It's for him, for his glory, for the good that he wants to use and to work and to come through it. And I lay myself down as Jesus prayed in the garden, you know, Father, not my will, but yours be done. How often do we pray that prayer when we get before our, our knees before a holy God and say, Lord. You know my heart, you know the things I want, what I want to do and how I want to do it, but Lord, I lay it all down before you and you say, and I'll obey. If Jesus could obey, my goodness, can't I? If Jesus can suffer for us, are we too great to suffer for him? Are we too great to make a sacrifice? You know, sometimes it seems like for us to do anything for, for Jesus, if Jesus asks us to do anything, we act like, you know, it's this huge deal. Well, let's remember the cross and put it in perspective. I do that. I say, Lord, I don't want to give this and that up because I like these things and they make me comfortable and they make me happy. I enjoy them. But at what cost? Just read this to end. And it says, Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish High Council, but he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, and then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on a Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. And as his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. And they were there home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But the time they had finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they, re- they rested as required by their law. We also know there was another man there named Nicodemus who had you know, Joseph asked for the body and he had the tomb, but there was another man named Nicodemus who had all the spices and all the things to prepare the body for burial. And that Nicodemus was the same one in John chapter three who had gone to Jesus at night and asked him questions. Well, through those questions and through that seeking, he obviously becomes a follower of Jesus himself. And so we encourage people in our lives, you know, keep asking questions, keep going, looking to Jesus and see, you know, is he who he says he is? If he is the king of all, follow him, worship him. And he, if he is not, well, you can reject him as so many others did when he was at the cross. You know, but really those are the two options when it comes to Jesus, is either to believe in him and to follow him, and say, You are king, and you are king, and you are savior, and therefore I'm going to follow you with my life. And if you believe that, do that. But either you do or you don't. You know, not everything in life is an either or, but this one is. This one is. And so, if he's, you know, and we each have to recognize this in our lives if Jesus is king, there's serious implications for that in my everyday life, and the big trajectory of my life, where my life is going and headed, and what my purpose is. And what happens, the same as John the Baptist, we end up saying, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. I have to get smaller. Jesus has to get bigger. But you know, there's something interesting that happens when that happens. You end up becoming more of the real you that God had always intended you to be, from when he first created you. you know, it, your, your real life begins to become redeemed, the real life that God's always intended you to have in, in him. Because in the following of Jesus, tell me anybody more who enjoyed more life more than the first you know, disciples and apostles and everyone who, though they suffered a lot, who, who had thrown their lives down for Jesus and followed him with reckless abandon. I don't think you're going to find people who had a more joyful, purposeful life. But sometimes, you know, but they had to make a serious trade. They had to trade the life that they had for that life, and it did come at a cost. And so that's where we always want to be very clear when we're talking to people about Jesus, that we don't make it this thing where it's just, you know, God's going to love you and save you, And then that's all there is to it, and that's great. And now it's like they're—it's like you know—they're buying fire insurance or something, or some sort of insurance policy on their house. But instead of for their house, they're buying it for their life. It's not that. Following Jesus is—we can't reduce it to that. Where that's—that's just it. Because we're not supposed to just believe in Him and then just go and do our thing. We're supposed to believe in him, and then we're supposed to walk with him every day. That's a really big difference. It's a really big difference. And so many times, you know, the the church is, you know, maybe has a lot of numbers talking about big picture as a whole, but it seems pretty pathetic a lot of times. Well, that's oftentimes why: either there's no gospel being preached, there's no salvation being preached in Jesus, or it's you know well as long as we can get people to come up and say a prayer and pat them on the back and send them on their way then we're all good and Jesus died on the cross for more than people who would just say yes i believe in you but for people who would follow him and who would lay their lives down for him you know in reckless abandon and say lord it's all you it's all for you it's all yours And it's the best life that we can have. It's a little different than what some people preach about your best life now. But it's certainly the best life you can have. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning just thankful, Father, that you sent Jesus to die for me and for my sins and that my debt before you was huge all the sins in my life over the course of my life that Jesus you went and paid for at the cross and so I thank you for these I thank you for your love I thank you for your goodness I thank you Jesus that you were willing suffer for me and for my family and for my friends and for people I'll never meet Lord you Jesus died not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world that you fulfill the promises Jesus that even were given to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed and Lord we pray to see that to, full to fruition. And we know that we will because we already have that picture around your throne in the book of Revelation that tells us that people from every tribe and tongue and nation people are there giving praise to you, oh God. So we're thankful, Jesus, that because of you we have a message for all people. A message for women and for men, a message for children and the elderly, a message for people of every color and of every tongue, and that your message is not bound by any of these worldly things. It's a message for every nation.